Hello and welcome to The Price of Everything, a podcast that aims to shine a light on pricing. The cost of commodities, that's energy, food and so on, is such an important part of our lives. But how are those prices actually calculated? Why do they move up and down quite so much? And what's next? The Price of Everything is the first podcast dedicated purely to how pricing works. My name is Neil Bradford, and I'm the founder and CEO of General Index, which is the world's first technology-led benchmark provider. Together with my colleagues from around the world and some special guests, we'll be taking you through how some of the world's most important commodities come to be priced and what the future looks like for them in the age of climate change and the energy transition. Dated Brent is the world's most widely recognized price for crude oil. But why Brent? How did an oil field off the coast of Scotland become so pivotal in global oil pricing? My colleague David Elwood explores the history. It was our friends, the Americans, who went to the moon and returned with honor. But here in Britain, in the North Sea, the oil industry has been to the bottom of the deep and has won not only honor, but oil. Well, hello everyone. My name is David Elwood and welcome to The Price of Everything. And now those are the words of Margaret Thatcher, uh, delivered obviously not in her own inimitable voice, but mine, uh, in a speech the, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom gave to the, the UK's Institute of Petroleum back in February 1985. Uh, the Institute of Petroleum was the forerunner to the Energy Institute, which of course, as we know, as many of you know, is the organizer of the annual International Energy Week in London. Now, back in 1985, Thatcher would have been about halfway through her time in office. And it was also when oil and gas receipts from the North Sea for the UK's treasury were at their peak. And as we'll see in this podcast, Thatcher's politics played a significant role in the rise of the North Sea industry and the proliferation of London as the hub for, as a hub for oil trading. But before we drill down any further, let me introduce you to our two guests who will help guide us through our topics today, uh, Liz Bosley and Colin Bryce. Uh, Liz is the CEO of Consilience Energy Advisory Group, having previously been head of trading, risk management and shipping offtake operations at Enterprise Oil. She has acted as an expert witness in almost 50 trading disputes and continues to participate in contract negotiations on behalf of clients. She's a true thought leader in the area of price formation and the development of international oil benchmarks. Uh, Colin, meanwhile, is a founding partner of Energex Partners. And before that, he spent some 29 years at Morgan Stanley. He was chairman of Morgan Stanley Bank International and co-head of global commodities and head of EMEA sales and trading at Morgan Stanley. Uh, and Another claim to fame, he was also closely involved in the creation of the Intercontinental Exchange. What my guests both have in common, actually two things in fact, is they, they were both at the same university together at the same time, and then fresh out of university, they joined the British National Oil Corporation. Um, and there'll be much more on this a little later in the episode, but just to say, so that the, the BNOC, as it's known, was the UK state body responsible for managing North Sea oil exploration and associated trading. Uh, Liz and Colin, many thanks for joining us. Welcome to The Price of Everything. Hello. Uh, nice to be talking to you. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, nice to nice to be on as well. Thank you both. Well, I, I, perhaps just for our listeners, just to just to tie up the link and link back to episode one. So where we left things off with with Doctor Adi Im uh, Shirovich was we were heading into the 1970s. We'd spoken about uh, the role that OPEC was playing um, and perhaps actually riding the wave of of the market and not being so much of a price leader, a price setter, and that the market was evolving. Um, with much more spot trading activity going on. Uh, but there was also increasingly um, uh, activity uh, exploration going on in different parts of the world, Alaska, but also the North Sea. And that really brings us uh, to our topic today. And we're sort of our loosely titled episode is North Sea Oil and the early years of Brent. And kind of put a date around, dates around, you know, say like 1971 to, to 1988. And 71 is key because this was at the start of the 70s. There was a lot of drilling activity and exploration going on in the North Sea. Uh, and just for our listeners, perhaps who are not familiar with the area of the North Sea, we're, we're thinking here about the body of water between uh, Scotland uh, and uh, Norway, Scandinavia. Both of you might, might have some thoughts on this. So obviously, at the turn of the, the 70s, um, BP had a, a big find in 1970, but then specifically for our area in terms of Brent, Shell and Esso, um, they discovered the Brent field in 71 and production started um, up a bit later in, in 76. Um, what are your thoughts looking back in, at that period? Um, there was a lot of geopolitical upheaval going on in, in, in other producing regions, part of the Middle, Middle East. Um, was was drilling in the North Sea by the majors, the BPs, the Shells, the SOs, was it a move, do you think, made out of desperation or economics? Um, Liz, perhaps I might come to you first with, with any thoughts you might yeah, have. Yeah, um, I'm not sure desperation is the right word. I think it was um, a move made out of the desire to make money, um, which, you know, at that time, <laughs> early 1970s, we had a Tory government under Keith. Um, we had seen oil prices leap up um, higher than we had seen before. Uh, and there was a desire for security of supply and to reduce reliance um, on other countries, particularly Middle Eastern countries. So when those early finds were made, it was, you know, pretty much um, wanting to make money uh, and ensure security of supply but the real big change came with the change of governments from Heath to Wilson um, where there was a, a much more marked desire to um, explore for oil for the benefit of the UK population as opposed to for the benefit of the oil majors. So I think the introduction of the um, Petroleum and Submarine Pipelines Act in 1975, which set up BNOC, was really to say, good grief, we found oil, we didn't expect to. Now let's make sure that the, the British population gets some benefit from it. It was a bit of a surprise to the the, the, the political class at the time. They weren't, weren't expecting this, or I suppose perhaps the, the actors drilling weren't expecting such a big discovery either. Well, that's right. I mean, when... Um, uh, we started exploring for oil, it wasn't with any great um, expectation that we were going to find what we eventually did find, 
So it was something of a surprise, yes. That's my recollection at the time. But remember, I was a baby <laughs> uh, still <laughs> at university in those days, but that was my perception. Colin, do you, would you take the same view? Was it um, naked uh, commercialization and desire to make money? Uh, what sort of factors do you think were going on there at the time in the 70s? Yeah, well, like Liz, I was uh, still in uh, secondary school at that point. But uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, my father was a tanker master, cap captain of the um, oil tanker for BP. And he spent uh, a lot of time in the mid-70s uh, taking uh, ultra-large crude carriers that had been uh, built in Korea and um, Japan uh, on their maiden voyages, not carrying oil, but to run them directly up a beach to be scrapped because... Uh, they were commissioned in the early 70s when uh, there had been a bunch of agitation, you know, from the producing countries. Um, and then by the time they were delivered and, and ready in sort of mid-70s, lo and behold, North Sea oil had been discovered. So I guess that tells you it was a surprise. <laughs> you know, oil trading, as, 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 as we kind of know it, um, I suppose, started in the mid-60s with people like um, Pinky Green and Mark Rich. And it was a, an activity where very few um, transactions were, were done. Maybe 5%, maybe less of the market was characterized by these little uh, spot transactions. And much of it actually, uh, I think, uh, broke uh, by people like Erwin Spooler, who had uh, um, his Bretol brokerage established in Paris in 1966. And... You know, these guys were making, the brokers were making $100,000 per cargo. So it was a very lucrative business, even mm. if the volumes were uh, were very small. And that really kind of was the start. But it was only really um, post, I suppose, 1976-7 when North Sea Oil came on and when, <clears throat> you know, producing nations had started to nationalize and move away from the traditional lines of supply to the oil majors that the glut came about and definitely the fact that there was a surplus and a glut was the reason for the creation of people companies like BMC and the beginning of trading um, and you know as Liz mentioned um, the, uh, the political uh, and economic circumstances in the UK were such that uh, it was fertile ground to, uh, to get going on. It's interesting what you were saying about the, the, the kind of the proliferation of spot trades and I know there was a statistic in in, in, in Addy's book, he notes that spot trades uh, at the end of the 70s, just in, over one year, that um, they rocketed from under 5% to around a quarter of activity in the market in, in 1979 over the course of a year. So there was a real trajectory and real explosion in activity. Uh, and I, I'll come on in a moment. Uh, we'll, 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 come, we'll come back to, to talk about the role of the BNOC, but... Um, We've spent a we've noted a little bit about the the dynamics of the situation at the time, specifically here in the UK, and and why that was conducive. So we, we'll we'll dig into this. And, and Colin, I, I know you've got some thoughts on what why London why London became a, a real hub for crude oil trading. But tell our listeners why did that happen in London and and not say New York or Houston, the US, which had up until perhaps the hundred years or so up until the nineteen seventies had, had been a dominant place. Uh, but it didn't happen in the Middle East either. So what was it about London that made it a really attractive and dynamic place for, for this new industry to take off? I think that's a really interesting question because, of course, it, um, 
presages the creation of something that uh, something very special actually between sort of 1978, 80 and, and the present day, which is the genesis of North Sea, uh, North sea oil trading uh, in, in London, the good old days of North Sea oil trading, as I think it sometimes is uh, referred to. Well, clearly there was the legal system and um, in, in, in the UK there was, a, um, as Liz pointed out, um, desire by Mrs. Thatcher's government to deregulate the city and to promote and promulgate uh, business. Um, there was this ample production uh, then uh, from the uh, North Sea fines. Um, from the, I think 76 uh, was the start with the Argyle field and, and it uh, came flooding on thereafter. Um, and also, I think quite importantly, um, two of the major producers uh, of, the, um, of that volume, Shell and BP, were London uh, were London based. So there were a number of sort of factors came together there. Um, I guess you could have said, well, why didn't it happen in Houston or um, in New York? Because already there was a trading business effectively, mainly in, in Houston, trading um, sort of federal price controlled um, uh, markets in, in the US. And it may well be that they were so busy um, uh, with that profitable activity that they really didn't um, look beyond their own domestic doorstep um, to what was happening in the international market. Um, Can I just add I something to that, please, Colin? Yes. Um, of course, you have to remember, back in those days, communications were completely different. Um, when you wanted to talk to a client, you could pick up the phone, but there was no mobile phones, there was no social media, there was no email. So a lot of um, the negotiations and relationship building was done face-to-face -face in restaurants or in meetings. So the cluster formed around London because of North Sea Oil and the fact that a lot of the um, producers and the regulators were based in the UK. So if you wanted to talk to them, you wanted to take them out to dinner and you wanted to, you know, sort of um, just constantly be in touch, you actually had to be physically in London. And I guess that being in person meant that this was a period where the influence of driven and proactive individuals and personalities was a factor too. Yes. Yes, very much so. Mm. Yeah, I think you, you, you can't overemphasize that uh, fact. I think that's a very, very important uh, um, reason why, um, you know, this uh, milieu uh, grew so, uh, so, so fast um, and, you know, was uh, such good fun for those who had uh, the good fortune to be, uh, to be part of it. There were, uh, you know, some very um, uh, um, strong and um, uh, forceful characters about it at the time, people like uh, John Doyce. Transworld and Mark Rich, uh, even you know others, um, money guys in the shadows like Jacob Rothschild, who sponsored um, uh, certainly Bomar, one of the trading companies, if not uh, not 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 more. There were you know big uh, um, big traders like Andy Hall, um, uh, Peter Ward, and Shell, and then uh, mm, Jerry Brennan, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, Jerry Brennan. There were brokers, David Houghton and PVM played a big part. The media were important, you know, Jan Naismith with his uh, weekly Petroleum oh, yes. Argus articles that everybody worshipped on a Friday. When they, uh, there were just people who wanted to make something of, you know, what was uh, 
able to happen and what was um, uh, you know being built on the on on, on the back of a very strong um, volume growth and uh, a legal and political system that was uh, promulgating this um, this whole movement. I mean, some of the hijinks stories from that period. Um, make very entertaining uh, uh, accounts. Um, it was a bit wild west, I have to say. <laughs> there, were there were certainly some scallywags around, uh, Elizabeth. <laughs> we, both, we, we both know probably who they are. <laughs> <laughs> My lips are but sealed. Then, you know, you, some of the people that were attracted to this business, I mean, there were some really colourful folks. I mean, you know, sort of um, former mercenaries and uh, folks with Pretty shady past. But having so, said that, we also had people like um, the now Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> <laughs> yes. so we had the whole spectrum. Um, Justin Welby was, I actually shared an office with for some time. <laughs> uh, these people were obviously, they were, all, they were mixing and the oil industry was growing here in London, but it, and they were obviously part of a much broader economic environment that was growing around the city of London. So uh, as, uh, as it was just, it was, it was the right place to be. It sort of, I suppose the North Sea exploded at just the right time. Yes, there was definitely a London cluster and it was encouraged by um, the City of London Authority. Um, they enjoyed the business and it made, it, particularly during the, the heat years and the Thatcher years, um, it was made a reasonably comfortable place to be doing business. Yes. I remember that there was a very famous article in Texas Monthly in October 1984, which um, uh, examined uh, what BDOT were doing uh, at the time uh, relative to uh, an OPEC setting crisis and, and how the traders at the time were reacting to it. A very interesting article, but I recall one of the stats in there was that um, at that time in uh, late 1984, they reckoned there were a thousand people who were involved in trading these North Sea uh, North Sea markets? So it was a pretty, um, pretty mm. sizable, uh, sizable activity. But what I'd like to do next is I'd like you to, to try take us inside uh, this this organisation that we've referenced a few times, the the British National Oil Corporation or the BNOC, um, as it's known. Um, you were both working there um, quite early in its in its life. Um, Maybe Liz, perhaps you could give us a, an introduction. Of what was what was the purpose of the, the BNOC? What was its mandate? Um, what was its link to the to the North Sea, and what was going on? Sure. Um, well, it was set up by the uh, Petroleum and Submarine Pipelines Act of 1975, and it established British National Oil Corporation with a mandate to um, explore for oil. Um, and to handle the licensing and taxation of oil and also to administer the petroleum and submarine pipelines system uh, in the UK. So it had a pretty broad mandate. It was formed out of the assets of the, the coal board and um, some from Burma Oil. But the main thrust of uh, BNOC was the participation agreements. And what those said was effectively, if you're producing in the North Sea, BNOC is entitled to purchase 51% of it. Uh, and the thinking behind that, or the, 
political explanation of the thinking before that uh, for that was that if there was ever a crisis and we were short of oil, BNOC would have access to at least 51% uh, of what was produced in the North Sea. Now, BNOC had no refineries, so what was it going to do with all this oil once it bought it? And the answer was it would sell it back to the oil companies at the same price that they had just bought it. But if ever there was a crisis, they would continue to buy it and not sell it back. So BNOC was mandated to negotiate the price on a quarterly basis at which it would both buy and sell North Sea oil. That was the original intention. Of course, as soon as um, it was set up, um, we had, uh, well, it was um, developed really through the Callaghan years. And then in 1979, when it was just getting into its stride, Margaret Thatcher um, came in uh, and she, in 1982, started to systematically dismantle it. But maybe you want to talk some more about what Beanock did before we talk about um, Mrs. Thatcher as Beanock's nemesis. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll come. We'll come through. We'll come to its uh, its dismantlement. Um, so, 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 uh, given that it's it's purchasing or has a sort of right of refusal to buy this this crude, um, and then can sell it back. It, it, it must it had a key role in pricing and you were describing that they were set in quarterly prices mm -hmm. um obviously elsewhere in the world you had opec at the same time and the majors before them had set posted prices um was the bnoc do, doing anything different how were they going about their pricing well i was um, a trader um in the trading department of bnoc at that time and the idea was you would buy the oil and sell it at the same price, all under long-term contracts. So if the we could not sell it at the price at which we were buying it, we would lose money. So it was a balancing act to make sure that we had could buy it at a price that the producers would agree and could sell it on at the same price to either back to integrated producers or on to refiners, which was fine when you could do that and you had a total um, freedom to set the price. But um, as time went on and the market developed um, surpluses in certain periods, BNOC um, could agree a price to buy the oil, but would not be able to sell it on at that price. The price at which we agreed every quarter had to be approved by the Treasury, and they over time consistently began to insist that the purchase price was higher than a market clearing price at which we could sell. So whereas we started with all term contracts for reselling the oil, over time we had to go to spot contracts, and those spot contracts underperformed the quarterly negotiated price so BNOC started to hemorrhage money. If the um, producers didn't like the price that we were setting, they had the right to take us to an expert determination, an independent expert, 
And as far as I recall, I think that only ever happened once during Beanock's history. Um, Thompson Oil, the newspaper group, was a, an oil producer in those days. They took BNOC um, to expert determination and lost. But it was mainly the fact that BNOC was always pushed towards a higher price um, that meant that it began to lose money because it couldn't resell at that price. And that was the beginning of the end, really, for BNOC. Uh, Colin, any thoughts on this yeah. area? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's so much to say about uh, about BNOC. Um, it would be a, um, a long podcast uh, um, on its own. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I left in 1982, actually, to join uh, Britoil, which was the privatised arm. Um, so I, I remained with them and said goodbye to Liz, who went off down to London to, um, to trade for, uh, for the new BNOC. But, um, you know, it's interesting. I think that, that, that there are, for me anyway, there are two reasons why BNOC were set up in the first place. The first was ideology. Um, and it was Tony Benn's, um, um, you know, socialist uh, ideology mm -hmm. to have a yes. nationalised industry. And the second was the fact that there was a massive surplus of oil out there, happened to be um, a bunch of it in the North Sea. And the same two reasons, you know, uh, caused the demise. It was ideology. You know, Mrs Thatcher came in and didn't like that kind of stuff. And it was surplus, as Liz said, you know, um, uh, the surplus created um, a need for, for BNOC to have to uh, move barrels in the spot market and the spot underperformed the contract and uh, in, in, in surplus conditions they lost money and that was intolerable for, for the government. So you know, ideology and surplus started out and ideology and surplus closed it down in, in my, in, in, in my uh, humble view. <laughs> mm. I mean at that time when um, Callaghan was in power and when Colin and I both joined BNOC, um, there was a lot of um, zealots in the BNOC staff who were very left-wing. And I have to confess, in the early days, I was one of them. I came out of um, a Clydeside Union shipyard background and thought that um, BNOC was just the very fellow for me. Um, this left-wing organisation sticking it to the oil companies. Well, I'm older and wiser now, but that was a popular perspective in those days. There was an ideological drive to have the headquarters in Glasgow because at the time we had the whole Scottish nationalist thing going on. It's Scotland's oil. So the government wanted to prove that Scotland was getting something out of this. So the main recruiting was done in Glasgow initially. Of course, it migrated to London eventually, but having BNOC's headquarters in Glasgow was just all part of the ideology of the time. Unlike Liz, I, I didn't have any ideological considerations to, to trouble me at the time. <laughs> I just got a call. I, just got a, I got a call from my economics tutor and said, Bryce, we're down to St Vincent Street, BNOC are interviewing Okay, fine. Off I went. Next thing, uh, they sent me a letter to say you'll start. You're starting on the 9th of July, and you know, and I turned up in St Vincent Street, and lo and behold, there was Liz sitting next to me. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it, I had no idea. She joined the economic intelligence unit. I joined the pricing unit, and you know, we've been pals ever since. 
picking up on what Colin was saying, that it, as obviously into the 80s, we were then ideologically in sort of Thatcher period and um, uh, Lawson Chancellor, I, I, I think, and uh, obviously the more free market ideology going on here. And, and he was describing how um, the, B, the BNOC um, and, and the Treasury wanted to increasingly link the price into the spot market. Was that, I mean, that was... Uh, it, that was part of just the broader trend at the time, right? There's more activity outside of the North Sea as well going on in the spot market. Was that mm. was that was that simply the link? Was that the direction of travel? Not quite. Um, the Treasury didn't have a view about spot versus term. Okay. I mean, it was all about money and price, and the fact that we couldn't sell the oil at the term price on which they insisted meant that we had to sell at spot and that's why the spot market grew. It wasn't that the Treasury or the government were trying to encourage the spot market. I do recall from that time, um, I was, you know, I traded at BNOC, but I was, you know, a, a, low, a low pay grade. Um, I was just a desk trader, but the um, my bosses, had regular quarterly meetings, not only with Statoil, who were our Norwegian equivalent, but also with various various um, OPEC member states who were putting pressure on BNOC and on Treasury to support high oil prices. And some of the, towards the end of my um, stay at BNOC, when I became extremely disenchanted with the whole thing, um, around about 1985, just before Thatcher wound it up, um, the, the BNOC traders were saying, we cannot set the price at that level because we can't sell it at that level. We're going to lose a fortune. And Treasury insisted on the high price. As a result, we had to sell huge quantity spots, started hemorrhaging money, and... Um, Baroness Thatcher um, said, oh, goodness me, we've got another loss-making state enterprise. We better wind them up. The only reason, sorry, you can see my, I can feel my blood pressure going up talking about this. Um, <laughs> the only reason we were losing money in the first place is because Treasury would not let us do our job and set the price at a market-clearing level. And... Really, so it, you're describing it became a sort of a recipe for disaster and kind of precipitated its demise. Absolutely. It was a very popular thing for the Tory government to be able to say, this is a loss-making state enterprise, let's get rid of it. And the man in the street, the voter in the street, doesn't quite understand the background and the, the politics of um, how it came to be losing money in the first place. Okay. And just before the axe fell, I thought, I'm not having this, um, and jumped ship and left the company and went to the city. That's a good place for us to pause and bring the first part of episode two to a close. In the next part, I'll be asking Liz and Colin more about the proliferation of trading around Brent crude oil as we continue to explore the history of Brent the world's most important oil price benchmark. Thank you for listening to The Price of Everything, a new podcast from General Index. To continue listening, 
click on the link in the show notes for the next part right now.